In this edition, we focus on how farmers can get organic certification. Organic food refers to the agricultural practices used in the growing, processing, storage and the sale of this produce. And this week, we share a guide for new farmers. We're back with Meadow Feeds, who farmers really turn to for more than just feed. Guy Bomgaard, Divisional Technical Manager for Poultry at Meadow Feeds, shares a guide to start a layer production for smaller farmers in South Africa. Our hashtag soil sister, Junia Perequa grew up farming, but she never thought the day would come that she'd call herself a farmer, a marketer by profession. She spent 23 years working in different organizations, but today she's one of the women selected for the Corteva Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. And our farmer tip of the week comes from Andile Matukane, founder of Farmer's Choice. She shares a few tips to grow spring onions. This is Farmer's Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi. Inspiration for your business and life. From South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs. Hey ya, and welcome to episode 140 of Farmer's Inside Track, powered by Meadow Feeds. I'm your host, Dawn Numdu. Now, we have a lot of what we like to call our how-to guides lined up in this episode. But first, we kick off with that promise guide on how to get organic certification if you're a farmer in Mzanzi. Nicole Ludolf chats to Alan Rosenberg from the South African Organic Sector Organization, a non-profit organization focused on uniting and growing the organic agriculture sector in South Africa. Over to you, Nicole. Thank you so much, Dawn. Alan, can you tell us about the South African Organic Sector Organization? The history of the formation of SOWASO goes back, I suppose, decades. But in 2008, some of us who were working in the organic space made an appeal to the Department of Trade and Industry for them to do a study to determine if there is such a sector in the national economy, such a sector being the organic sector. Fortunately, they invested a bunch of funding and they conducted what's known as the fridge study. And out of that study, it was determined that, yes, there is a formal sector in the national economy under the umbrella of organic agriculture. So it was Department of Agriculture, DTI, Rural Development and Kochta, who gave the mandate to the formation of Soasu. But at the same time, government also acknowledged that she also would have to have a grouping of departments who would represent government in the development of the organic sector, those same four government departments. So Waso and the body that was initiated within government was called OSIC, the Organic Sector Strategic Implementation Committee. And OSIC and Sawaso were then, of course, mandated to develop the sector. So we've been working in the space of the development of the sector since 2009. How is the organic certification standard developed? Those of us who were in the organic space knew that in order for engagement at government level, we would certainly need standards because the standards would then ideally form the basis of policy and the policy would engender the formation of a strategy. So that was the mindset behind the advocation of the standards. We've been working on that already in the 80s and the 90s. We did try with Department 
of agriculture, forestry and fisheries at the time in the 90s and early 2000s to create a standard, which was based on the International Federation of Organic Agricultural Movements on their standards. And they were sent off to the World Trade Organization for approval. They came back to Mzanzi and they went to the lawyers to approve the implementation and acceptance of those standards. And the lawyers said, no, these standards are not compliant. And so we had to reinvent the standards again. And instead of Department of Agriculture doing it, it went to SABS, the South African Bureau of Standards, for SABS to now initiate the standards. And that took a while, a number of years, to recraft the standards. Our standards, from Sawasu's point of view, are in the IFOM international family of standards. And IFOM is that International Federation of Organic Agricultural Movements. They represent 800 affiliates. They are representing 117 different countries, and they were first formed in 1972. The Sawaso standards, they don't belong to Sawaso. They belong to the people of Mzanzi. Sawaso is the custodian of those standards. Those standards also have an allegiance and compliance and acceptance of the rights of Mother Earth. What are some of the farming criteria that farmers need to meet to get an organic certificate? The reference to the rights of Mother Earth would be a wonderful document for those farmers wanting to go the organic route. There's a very short document that references how we would need to orientate to people, to the environment, to economics and to ethics in order to become organic. If we look at the SOASO standards, there's generally within the actual standard, there's definitions There's a description of the organic ecosystem. There's a general requirement for crop production and animal husbandry. Then there's a section on winemaking, processing and handling, labeling and marketing. And then there's approval, verification and equivalence. And there are standards even at a social justice level. So in a sense, the standards are seemingly quite complex, but they're actually the most simple we can get in order to try and describe what do we mean when we say we're following organic standards. The most simple way to describe it is that we are trying to develop soil. The old world paradigm suggested that the job of the farmer was to grow crops. The current unfolding new paradigm is that the job of the farmer is to grow soil because we air the soil to the next generation, not crops. And the way that an organic practitioner approaches organic is that he feeds the soil, not the plant. Modern industrial agriculture feeds the plant and it, in a sense, negates the soil. So that would be the fundamental difference. There's a seventh generation indigenous knowledge principle that says whatever we do on the soil needs to honor and respect and take into accordance the seventh generation. So we're really looking at long-term visioning here. Not only am I as a practitioner needing to generate an income to be socially mindful, to be mindful of my environment, but that what I put into practice must suit seven generations downstream. What are some of the farming criteria that farmers need to meet to get an organic certificate? I think under the umbrella term certification, there's a threefold approach. The first approach is that I, as the practitioner, claim that my produce is organic. 
and then I form a relationship at the farm gate with a consumer who's prepared and willing to buy my produce. And he or she or them or they trust that when I say it's organic, it is organic. That's the first point of call for an interpretation under the banner of certified organic. The next point is through what's called the Participative Guarantee System, or PGS. So a number of practitioners come together. They all live and work in a particular domain in a certain locality. They form themselves into a PGS group all the role players in the value chain to come and do an assessment on the farm. So at regular intervals, the farmers go from their farm to other people's farms. They've invited those people who are supplying the inputs and they're inviting the consumer and they do a survey of the practices done on that particular farm. Out of that survey, they determine, does this farm warrant the term organic? Might be uh, some precursors to achieving that term. You can be considered organic if you do A, B, C, or D. Or you might well be doing everything right, and therefore you're considered organic. That's second-party assurance. And then third-party assurance or certification comes when a commercial farmer engages with a third-party an accredited certification body, ACB, they would then invite that body to come and monitor the farming practices in the context also of all the record keeping. And on the basis of that assessment, the third party certifying body then will determine is that farmer considered organic or not. And there might be conditions in conversion towards a final status of being organic. So those are the three routes that one could take towards achieving organic status. How long does it take to get an organic certificate? Within the actual standards, the SOASO standards, or those standards which emanate out of IFOAM internationally, there are guidelines. And for crops, it's going to take about a year and a half. So you can't be organic by default. You can't say that my grandfather and his grandfather and the grandfather before him never applied any chemicals. So therefore, my farm's organic. One has to accept that when you claim an organic status, you have a visioning of the practices that you will engage with on the farm going into the future. You have to have a soil fertility management program. You have to have an insect, pest, and disease management program, et cetera, et cetera. So invariably, it's not a short process. But it can take anywhere between one and three years, depending on the conditions out of which you originally embark on the organic route. The organic status is only given for a period of one year. So there's an assessment that's either carried out by the local PGS group or by that third party ACB, the accredited certification body. That would have to happen on an annual basis. What are some of the benefits of getting an organic certificate? Having the certification enables the farmer to market his or her produce into civil society on the basis of somebody having determined that that produce received an organic status. So if at first party, I claim that my product is organic. You know, we live in a world where morals and ethics are kind of compromised. So it's easy for me to claim my product is organic. It's much more difficult to have second party assurance and much more difficult to have third party assurance. 
I think the greatest benefit comes in being able to market your produce in the comfort of knowing that it wasn't you only who determined the status of your product. It came through either PGS or ACB. And then uh, one of the other benefits is that you could ask for a premium because now your product is certified organic. But it also comes back in the long run that the longer you maintain your organic integrity, the smaller and the less your inputs needed to maintain and develop soil fertility. So one of the long-term benefits of being certified organic is that your soil profile is developed to the point where it now becomes easily sustained. Finally, do you have any tips or advice for farmers that will help ease the certification process? The first step would be that they go to the SOASO website, www.saoso.org. And on the website, they would be able to access the SOASO organic standard. And then it would be a matter of the person reading the standard and making him or herself comfortable with their interpretation of implementing according to the standard. It's a bit like a guidebook or a rule book what you can do, what you can't do, and how to do in order to achieve the status. The other simple way is to get the document called the Rights of Mother Earth and follow what's advocated in there. It's actually a very simple procedure. Once you've made the connection that man is only a strand in the web of life, we are not the web of life. We're only one strand in it. There's the physical kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, and the human kingdom. The task of the farmer or the practitioner is to understand those four kingdoms of nature and how to, as a human being, work with, in an uncompromising way, those four kingdoms of nature. Thanks, Nicole. And it's great having you here on Farmers Inside Track. Alan Rosenberg from the South African Organic Sector Organization. We now switch things up from organic certification to livestock production. We're back with Meadow Feeds, who farmers really turn to for more than just feed. Guy Bomgaard, Divisional Technical Manager for Poultry at Meadow Feeds, shares a guide to start a layer production for smaller farmers in South Africa. Guy, it's so great to have you with us. But before we get into today's topic, maybe just a bit about yourself, your career in agriculture, and more about the work that you do at Meadow Feeds. Thank you, Dawn. I did a degree in animal science from the University of Natal, now known as UKZN. I did a BSc Agriculture, majoring in Animal and Poultry Science. I started out initially working with vitamin and trace mineral premixes, and then I moved to the feed side of things, and I've been working in feed mills ever since then. I joined Meadow Feeds in 2005 as Assistant Nutritionist at Ranfantine, I then moved to Meadowfeeds Dalmas as the nutritionist for that feed mill. From there, I was the central region technical manager that's looking after both the Dalmas and the Ranfantine mills. From there, I've moved to the head office and basically responsible for poultry nationally within the Meadowfeeds group. Thank you so much. And I know with your experience, I'm going to be learning a lot today. And I'm really excited to be able to share your skills and experience and knowledge with our farmers who's listening to this podcast. I think for me, what I've come to understand when it comes to poultry is that biosecurity is always top of mind. What is the important aspects and areas that farmers should understand as a starting point 
when it comes to biosecurity, Gay? Biosecurity is extremely important, especially with the avian influenza in South Africa. And I think ladybirds, particularly if they're vaccinated, they can be kept disease-free, they can perform well, and they can produce eggs for a long period of time. But in order to remain disease-free, proper biosecurity protocols need to be put into place on the farm. And the easiest one is the controlled movement of people, the equipment, and of course, the birds themselves. Biosecurity is the best method of preventing disease. And some simple processes to include the controlled movement of people and equipment, limiting contact of outside people onto the farm, as well as the movement between houses on the farm, It's also important to limit contact of free-ranging birds and wild poultry on the farm. People visiting the farm as well should not have been in contact with other poultry for at least 24 to 48 hours. Clean boots and overalls must be used when entering the farm. Foot baths and disinfectants at the entrance of the farm and all the poultry houses is extremely important. And the farm should also be free of rodents since rodents carry the risk of disease. At the end of a production cycle with layers, it's particularly important to keep the house open until you place new flocks, make sure that all the equipment is cleaned and thoroughly disinfected. This will include the drinkers, the feeders, the nest boxes. Another important aspect is if there are any mortalities to try and limit the spread of a disease if it's suspected and to make sure that a veterinarian is contacted in this case. Thanks so much for that very clear overview in terms of what farmers should be aware of when it comes to biosecurity. And today we'll also be covering a number of other areas that is also vital, specifically around housing, nutrition, and just overall well-being of your animals when you consider layer production. Let's start with housing. What are the types of housing systems? What should farmers know? And what are the tips that you have for them to get started? Okay. So there are many types of housing systems for layers. The most popular one are the battery cages and floor systems. They each have their own advantages and disadvantages, but battery cages allow for ease of management, lower incidence of diseases spreading, as we've discussed a little bit, and the absence of litter issues and also the cost of shavings. Some disadvantages of the cages are that it does restrict the physical space for the hens to move can lead to a higher maybe incidence of foot-related injuries, but this can all be managed. The complete opposite of cages is, of course, the floor systems with nest boxes. Layers on a floor system do have more space. It allows the bird to move around more freely. It's regarded as more humane. However, their hygiene is often a problem as well as the cost of litter. There are also some combination systems that have open cages on the floor with slats as a design. There's plastic or wooden slats that are raised off the floor to allow for accumulation of droppings. It's often more hygienic and cooler for the birds. However, these systems are only suitable for adult birds. The design of the house should be carefully considered together with the environmental conditions. Now, when it comes to the overall well-being of the animals, what are some of the aspects to consider? Before we get to nutrition, let's talk about getting your birds, your chicks into your house. What should you be looking at in terms of water, in terms of lighting, in terms of air quality? And then I know that there are also aspects in terms of vaccination and what we spoke about earlier in terms of biosecurity when it comes to disease control. 
But let's start with water, lighting, air control. Water is extremely important as a nutrient on any farm. A 50 gram egg contains about 33 grams of water. So a water shortage on the farm will result in a dramatic decrease in production. And birds should always have free, what we would call ad libitum, access to fresh and good quality water. As a rule of thumb, layers should drink twice the amount of water than the weight of feed that they would consume. And water can be tested for various parameters. In South Africa, there are a number of laboratories that can offer these services. And one other important aspect to keep in mind is that birds that drink too much or drink too little water could be an indication of disease. And that is why monitoring water intake is extremely important. The excretes of the bird can also be used as an indicator of water intake. Droppings that are too dry with little urine can indicate low water intake. And it's important to be in mind that as the outside temperatures, like in the summers, increase, the birds start to pant, they get rid of excess heat and water availability becomes even more vital. If we talk a little bit about air quality, comfortable temperatures for layers is between 18 to 25 degrees Celsius with the maximum relative humidity of 80 degrees. Birds do start to pant above 25 degrees Celsius and this will negatively affect egg production. Ventilation is important. It's an important aspect of air quality and good ventilation is required for the birds in order to remove the excess moisture and heat from the house and to provide adequate oxygen levels to the birds to remove the carbon dioxide that is produced by the birds and to remove the dust and the ammonia buildup within the house. Thanks so much. I think that I've heard lots of people talk about the important aspects, but you've put it out very clearly for us, Gabe, for anyone who's interested also currently operating as a farmer in this industry. Let's talk now about nutrition. What are some of the aspects that farmers should understand and what are some of the things that meadow feed supplies in terms of feed and for the overall well-being of your animals? Because I know that, you know, farmers really turn to meadow feeds for more than just feed and there's so many aspects when it comes to ensuring that your animals have the proper feed to ensure their growth and make sure that they have what they need to be able to get a good production at the end of the day. Layer hens, we've already spoken about fresh water, but they also require fresh feed. And feed cost on any farm is approximately 70% of the running cost. So it's important that the hens are provided with exactly what she needs for both production and maintenance. Anything more is going to be wasting money and anything less is going to impact the hen production. Points of lay birds, that would be the birds that have just arrived onto the farm, they require a balanced diet in order to meet the egg production and their maintenance needs. The maintenance needs of a 20-week-old layer is still high because the bird is still young and she's still growing. So we formulate a diet specifically to meet the requirements of this young bird and to ensure that essential nutrients are provided for optimum egg production, frog development, feathering, and plumage, and as well to keep the bird healthy and to ensure that she can lay the eggs until at least 18 weeks or older. So we source the best quality of raw materials and our nutritionists formulate these diets to provide the birds with high quality grains, proteins, and digestible sources of energy. Within the scope of this, we have different ranges of feed. So we have a power lay, early lay, 
this is for when the birds arrive on the farm and they need to be fed an early lay diet, which is designed as part of a face feeding program for the hens. It's formulated using grains and pulses, no animal byproducts, no fish meal, and it can be fed from the day the birds arrive, which is the point of lay, until 35 weeks of age. The second phase in this range is called the power utility lay, and it can be fed from 36 weeks of age to 50 weeks of age. This feed is formulated to be either a two-phase or a three-phase feeding program, or it can be fed as a single phase. So this means that the power utility lay feed can be fed throughout the laying cycle, or it can be incorporated into a program together with just the early lay or as part of the early and late lay, so in other words, three-phase feeding program. The power lay late lay is the last diet to be fed in the complete range using the three-phase feeding program. And this is to be fed from 51 weeks of age to the end of the laying period. This diet is formulated to meet all the requirements of the fully grown layer whilst maintaining hen health and allowing the hen to continue producing eggs for as long as possible. This is important because the digestive system of the bird is very sensitive, so it's always important to avoid sudden changes in feed. This causes disruptions in the energy, protein, and mineral supply, which can cause a decrease in production. And the meadow feed's power lay range is formulated to be fed from one phase directly through to the next without large disruptions in changes to the supply of nutrients. It is important, we've spoken a little bit about the housing and water. It is important to know that the environmental conditions, the housing and the breed will affect the amount of feed to be fed. And this is just a guideline. Thank you so much, Kay. I think we've covered quite a bit on this episode. And I'm sure there are people that have lots of questions and also would like to engage with you even further on the topic But if you would be able to just leave them with one or two points, some vital tips that you think that is important for any new farmers starting out in terms of layer production. I think that layer production, you can be successful at it. There's just some basic farming principles to keep in mind. And one of those, as we've mentioned, particularly the biosecurity and the nutrition are really two aspects that are vital importance. Thanks for joining us once again, Gay Boomhart, Divisional Technical Manager for Poultry at Meadowfeeds. For more on this, you can read the article on www.foodformzanzi.co.za. Our hashtag soil sister, Junia Parekwa, grew up farming, but she never thought the day would come where she'd actually call herself a farmer. A marketer by profession, she spent 23 years working in different organizations. But today, she's one of the women selected for the Koteva Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. Now, this is a year-long blended development program at the Gordon Institute of Business Science Entrepreneurship and Development Academy. Junior, as I mentioned, you're a marketer by profession, but today you're farming. Now, it isn't all new to you. Where did it all start? So when we grew up, every holiday, we would go to the rural areas where my grandparents stayed and we would work on their farm. Basically, it was more helping them work on their farm. They would have planted maize, groundnuts, sunflowers. It was, for me, a good time to catch up with family whilst working on the livelihood of my grandparents. However, as I grew up, my mother then took it upon herself. She was a hustler. 
So she would do a lot of other things in town, but she also started doing vegetable farming back at home. So she would go to the rural home once a week to plant vegetables. She would then go once a week to harvest whenever they were ready. In essence, I grew up in agriculture. She had a chicken run in our home in the town. Luckily, our neighbors never had issues with them. When I went to school, I didn't like agriculture. I think it was just too hard. But I also think I didn't have a lot of understanding back in the day of what agriculture can bring and what the soil can bring. But when you look at it now, I do understand that the soil is our livelihood. We can't do anything without it. It's either you are farming crops or you are raising your animals. It's what will make us live in the future. And then when I got married, also I had a chicken run at the house and we had chickens, which we did at my in-laws place. So chickens were sort of like in my blood. We rented a small farm with my ex-husband and we were doing vegetables, which was more cauliflower and lettuce. When I divorced my husband and I started looking for a home for myself, I thought instead of getting a house in town, which would not do anything for me, why not get a small plot? And the small plot would actually start producing food. What enticed me more was also the focus when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to feeding the nation, which is not only the mantra in South Africa, but the mantra in the world where the focus is now shifting towards how do we feed the nation? How do we get nations to get food? So I got a small plot. 2021, I lost my job, but I then thought to myself, well, it's okay, I will do farming because I've got my plot anyways. I'll work on it and I'll make it work for me. In life, we all face hardships. What are some of the challenges that you faced and some of the factors that motivates you, you know, to keep on keeping on? It's been a big learning curve, but just like any other business, a business does not come without its challenges. So when I got the plot, it came with a few rural chickens. It came with exotic birds, ducks. So I got in and those things were already here. My role was now to nature them and to grow them. I had, when I started, about 30 chickens. And then I grew those chickens to 500 before I started selling. And then I started selling them. These are your free range chickens. So when I started off with broiler chickens, and the reason for broiler chickens was the idea that with broiler chickens, like your quick queen. So when I did my business plan, I had my quick queens and the things that would spin the money and then the things like my long-term thing, goals. So the quick queen for me was the broiler chickens. I started off with broiler chickens. I had 2000 in my first cycle. It was the most learning curve, I must say, because you can imagine with broiler chickens in July, July being like the coldest month in the year, so the cold weather was not good for my chickens. I lost a bit of the chickens. I tried to make sure that I had the heating that they required, but I lost a bit of them. But that didn't stop me. So from those 2000, I then went on and decided instead of doing 2000 at one go, I'll split them so that I do 1000 after every two weeks. So came November, December with the raids. Also came a bit of challenges with diseases new diseases that I had not encountered before, which also then affected my batches at the time. So it has helped me to sort of focus and to know how to plan 
So I then started with vegetable farming. I started with my first batch of tomatoes, which we sold just before winter. It was a small batch because I wanted to test whether the soil was conducive and whether I was able to do it. And the harvest was quite good. I ended up selling to my local markets, my local hookers. I know that farmers do so much for their communities. Tell us about how your farm is giving back to your community. For now, not really. However, I've been in talks with the local universities and agricultural colleges. There's actually a gentleman who sent a message on one group that I'm on asking if we can help with students, placing students for their learnership. So that's one area that I'm actually in the process of finalizing. For me, that's also giving back. However, in the future, it's something that I always had a passion for is taking care of orphans. I intend to look for orphanages close to where I stay, where I can give them produce like maybe once a week or once a month, depending on their needs and what I have at that particular time. But that's one area which I personally am passionate about, which is orphans and single mothers. And then finally, while sharing your journey in agriculture in an article on Food for Mzanzi, you gave some sound advice for aspiring farmers to employ knowledgeable people and start with money that you have. And most importantly, do not let anything stop you. Do you have any other advice, especially for women entering the farming arena? The first one is if you want to go into farming, don't let anything stop you. You must push for it. Even if you see challenges, challenges will come. It's like in any industry. Even when you're facing challenges, just move on, just go on and yearn for your dream. Number two, when you're looking at employing people, you need to employ people that are knowledgeable because most of the women that go into farming, it's because of a passion that we've had when we were young, because of the things that we understand about the industry. But it's not that we've had like real formal education in agriculture. So I would advise to get the people that work for you who are educated in agriculture, who know what they are doing. It's also advisable to have other farmers join WhatsApp groups, join Facebook groups. In those Facebook groups, a lot of people talk about their own challenges. They talk about the diseases of chickens, the diseases of crops. So you will be able to learn from other farmers, even though you are not in direct contact with them. And then four, finances are a big challenge in in agriculture. You will lose money here and there. In most cases, you go in, you've calculated your expenses and you're thinking, you know, the money that I have will last me a year. It is important that people know that, you know what, agriculture is one of the most expensive industries that you can go into. And it's also one of the industries that are not really easily funded because a lot of funders don't understand agriculture. Even if you don't have enough money, the money that you have starts there and builds your dream. Thanks for joining us. Hashtag Soil Sister Junior Parekwa. She's one of the dynamic women selected for the Kotevo Woman Agripreneur 2022 program. Agriculture is not just about farming. It's about caring. And that's an ideal worth preserving. It's super fresh. It's super soft. And it makes a meal a treat. It's super sure bread and super sure flour. A proud member of the VKB Group. From breakfast to lunch and even birthday cakes, Supershow makes the whole family smile. Find Supershow on Facebook or visit vkb.co.za for more info. VKB, for the love of the land.
Now you know I can't let you go without sharing your Farmer Tip of the Week. This week we hear from Andile Matukane, founder of Farmer's Choice. She shares some tips on how to grow spring onions. People who want to grow spring onion, they should just check out all the important notices to say, one, do your market research, know where you're getting your seedlings if you're buying seedlings, know the type of cultivar that you're going to produce so that you use the correct method for it and be sure that when you're harvesting, your people know what they're doing. You deliver what your clients requires because that's where your money is. If you're producing something that nobody wants to buy, you're going to end up getting four rand, two rand or three rand for that. Whereas your spring onion are worth 10 times what they're giving you. If you do your market research prior, get to know the type of seedlings that you want to get. When you're receiving your seedlings, be sure that they're healthy, they're of the right size. It simply starts with one seed. And our Farmer Tip of the Week from Andele Matukane, founder of Farmer's Choice, brings us to the end of another exciting episode. Remember, I say this all the time, but if you loved it, you better rate it and share it with your friends, family members and fellow farmers. From me, Don Numdu, Nicole Ludolf and our producer, Megan van der Fent, and the rest of the Food Foam Zanzi team, have an awesome week. Bye for now. Life in South Africa can be a lot. I mean, scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring, and even on the bad days, we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food Foam Zanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story.